Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, a collection of sermons and lectures by Kevin Morse. Well, last time we were together, I announced that we were going to be starting a new series on Teaching Thursdays going through the epistle known as 1 Peter. And I shared with you a recording of a sermon I did uh, a little while back to kind of set the stage for the letter and to give you a flavor of what it's about and what to expect. But by the way, um, just by way of introduction here, um, I want to know how you all are enjoying the format of the podcast this year. Um, we have not had quite three full months of the new format yet, but obviously uh, for any of you who've been listening for a length of time besides the last three months, know that we made a huge transition going into the year 2021 with having actual episodes corresponding to each day of the week instead of just a wide open format like it has been in the past. So I'd be curious to know just if you're enjoying it, if you're not enjoying it, please feel free to give me some feedback. I would love to know uh, what you think about it, but you can uh, email me, by the way, to do that, betterbiblereading at gmail.com. So without further ado, this week we are going to be jumping right into the text itself. There's going to be a little bit of overlap from the sermon that you heard initially, dealing with the first seven verses. And as I said, last time we were together on Teaching Thursdays, this is really the first time that I've done this, going through a book of the Bible, start to finish with you some really excited about it, and this will probably be a growing experience for me, figuring out uh, what the best format to do so is on a podcast, but literally my my goal is to just go straight through the book beginning to end. The main idea is to enjoy First Peter, so hopefully you are on board to do that. Let's jump into First Peter. Give you just a brief introduction some things to think about, and then we will interact with the text itself. So, First Peter, you open the book, you start reading, immediately you're met with this idea that Peter's audience that he's writing to, the way he addresses them is elect exiles. These are Christians that were oppressed going through uh, true suffering and persecution for their faith, and they were scattered all throughout the Roman Empire as a result. And this book's main theme covers that idea of being elect exiles, and the cool thing about First Peter is what he does is he takes that phrase, elect exiles, he introduces it as a geographical reality of his audience, and then he expands it to a theological reality. That elect exiles is kind of a wordplay because you could literally say elect exiles is to say chosen, rejected. And of course, those are um, antithetical realities. But Peter writes this letter to encourage Christians about this antithetical reality because we are met with this each and every day. We struggle between being elect and being exiles on this earth. And Peter writes to us, by extension, explaining how we were once exiles to God because of our sin. You have that imagery of the Old Testament community of Israel, where somebody who was unclean 
or somebody who sinned in a certain way in a certain way was was banished, was an outcast, was an exile from the rest of the believing community. You have that idea uh, corresponding to us outside of Christ. Before we were Christians, we were exiles in the sight of God because of our sin. We were banished from His holy presence. And yet, we were, in large measure, accepted by the world. The world, though in constant animosity towards God, is pretty good friends with each other, uh, generally speaking, right? But when we're born again, as the Bible says, we receive God as our Heavenly Father, we're adopted into His family, and we're then considered chosen or precious elect in His sight. And of course, we know what happens when we're brought near into a relationship with God like this. The tables turn. Uh, you might not be murdered. If you have been, you wouldn't be listening to this. But you have been facing some variety of persecution. When you're brought near into a relationship with God, the world begins to give us pushback. We're oppressed. We're treated shamefully. Sometimes we certainly are killed. But we triumph over all of this through our suffering with joy because God has accepted us and received us as his own. He gives us this eternal inheritance that Peter talks about. He protects us through faith in this life. And because of that, we can be called elect exiles, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, joyful sufferers, verses 6 through 9, and free servants. Chapter 2, verse 16. Really, in a nutshell, 1 Peter charges us to see trials as the way that God grows us, the way he shows us his power, the way he shows us how to exercise our faith. And so I really do hope that this study together will help you and help me consider ourselves aliens or exiles to the world, but children in the sight of God. So let me read for you. Jumping through uh, last week, I'm going to skip over it uh, for the most part, but I'm going to interact with it uh, just a little bit. Let me read verses 1 through 7, which is, uh, again, if you if you missed last episode of Teaching Thursdays, just go back, because uh, that dealt with the first seven verses. Um, but here's what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a mouthful there. And the fascinating thing about that just literary uh, consideration here is that we've pretty much just read two sentences. Uh, if you skip over the, the introduction, at least. So, verse 3 starts, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he just goes through this this long thread. It might be three sentences, but the the point is there's there's a lot of uh there's a lot of commas and commas and commas. He's just adding on glory to glory in everything that he's saying. So again, we we dealt with this in large measure last time together. And the point that he's making is to see the correlation between the fact that we can trust that God has indeed chosen us, he's elected us, he has caused us to be born again, and if we trust that God at the outset of our faith, that we trust that he has actually done this and that he has saved us, then we know because his salvation, the way Peter describes it, this foreknowledge, this God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity working, corresponding together to bring that salvation to pass. If God has done all of that, then there's no reason for us to suddenly throw our hands up in the air the moment we're faced with trials as if everything is off. All bets are off. Now that salvation that we've been talking about and enjoying, we can't trust in that anymore because of this particular trial. Peter purposefully brings those two realities together, the assurance of our salvation and the assurance of God protecting us and even appointing our trials so that we can be grown and developed and matured and seen safely through them, even if it means our death, that God has his eternal purposes in mind. And because we have eternal life, and because our inheritance is eternal and can never fade away, and because we serve a living God, that means that even if we die, we don't forfeit, or it's not as if God says, well, now you're not alive anymore, so the only thing that I was, you know, preparing you for was some kind of life on this earth. No consideration of life after death, no consideration of resurrection from the dead, so therefore, now you're dead, now you've been spoiled by this trial, I can't do anything with you. And Peter makes the point to say, if we serve a God who has conquered death itself, then regardless of what happens to us, there's no way that we can forfeit what it is he has secured for us. So that's the main argument of verses 1 through 7. And like I said, so much more could be said. But we'll leave it at that, and if you want to interact more with those first seven verses, please just go back to that episode we did last time in kind of the opening of this teaching series. But let's, let's move on to verses 8 through 12, which is where the first paragraph break is. So 8 through 12 is, is now a response to that. So Peter now moves... Um, to make a correlation between what he just said, which is the proper mindset we should have, and then he comes to terms with a 
reality that is true for all of us who live on this side of Jesus' ascension into heaven. He says this, verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that you have now in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So verse eight is packed with truth, and yet Peter brings this verse with a logic. He packs it full of this logic that seems to go throughout that whole rest of that paragraph. It is, it would seem, the main argument for the reality of joy in the heart of the Christian. He's arguing for this to be not an exception to the rule, but the actual rule that joy should be in the heart of the Christian. This verse, verse 8, speaks both of the reality of the churches directly addressed by Peter and any subsequent churches throughout history, including us. We share one thing in common. We have not seen Christ. We do not even see Christ currently in the present sense, which we all have. But one thing is true. We have received his work on our behalf, so much so that, Peter says, we love and believe in him, not just generally speaking, but with an inexpressible joy. That should be true for all of us. We walk by faith and not by sight, and Jesus calls those of us who have not seen him blessed. You think about what he says the end of John's Gospel, John 20. 29, where he says, Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet still believe. So this glory that we're waiting, this glory that has yet to be revealed, is all the more applicable to us, living 2,000 years removed from the writing of this letter, because we do deal with trials in our lives, and we deal with them without being able to physically see Jesus alongside us. So, Peter leads us to the conclusion of our faith, talking about the outcome of it. He says, it's the salvation of our souls. So, this outcome of our faith is both because of trials, that we have to see it through to the end, and by means of trials, that we possess such an inexpressible joy in Jesus. It seems that faith being expressed gives way to a joyful love and a joyful belief, a joyful faith, as spoken of in in verse 8. Faith is first wrought by God as a protection, think of verse 5, 
it's refined in our trials, verse 7, and brought to its outcome as inexpressible joy in the, rela- in the revelation of Jesus, verses 7 and 9. So Peter sees the revelation of Jesus Christ, what we call the beatific vision, as the ultimate joy and ultimate glory, because though we have not and do not now see him, we will, and this is the truth that is universal for all believers. Even those like Peter and Thomas who saw Jesus resurrected did not ultimately see him as he is. They didn't see him in his unveiled glory. Because they weren't even fully refined and glorified themselves to be able to witness that to its full capacity. And this is what all of us are waiting for as Christians. So, in short, our trials are paving the way for us to set our eyes and affections fully on Christ, and this is the inexpressible joy that sustains us through the trials, that not one of them are in vain but each and every trial is paving the way for joy that is so glorious it will literally be, as he says, inexpressible. Now, to be honest, such thoughts as this rarely inhabit our minds, but it seems to me that Peter makes it essential in handling ourselves in trials and essential in order to exhibit true joy. And we see the same kind of theology in James, in the very first chapter, when James talks about the connection between trials and joy. So, moving to verse 10, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So, it seems that Peter is pointing us towards looking at the prophets and the prophecies regarding Jesus, lest we make light of our current calling as Christians. In saying this, Peter wants us to see the vast practicality of the Christian lifestyle. So, if we observe verses 10 through 12, and then the following verse, where Peter says, the opening to verse number 13, therefore, he wants us to understand that we are learning a lesson and then applying it, and then learning a lesson and then applying it. You can do this, whether it's Peter or any of the other books in the Bible. There's a principle taught and then a conclusion statement, almost always started with the word, therefore. This is called the game of asking the question, what is the therefore, therefore? So the logic brought forth by Peter is a call for us to observe the significance of our calling by entreating our brothers in faith, our brothers and sisters in faith, from of old, these prophets during the time of the Old Testament. The brothers are the prophets who were led by, according to Peter, the Spirit of Christ, while prophesying about the sufferings of Christ, and the subsequent glories of Christ. Now, what is true about these men may be seen in the text that they were unaware when this Christ would come. They were unaware what implications his coming would have. They were unaware to whom the Christ would appear. They were unaware how this gracious salvation would be applied to all of the beneficiaries. 
But one thing is certain. They searched and inquired. They knew not if the Christ that they were prophesying about would come in their time or in a different time, but their lives exhibited a peculiar angst and reliance because the subject matter was so vast that even the angels were captivated by it. That's how Peter ends that paragraph. Remember that the things which angels long to look into verse 12. We think of Isaiah and the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, followed by the reign of glory. We think of Jeremiah and the discipline of God that he laments about, but it leads to a new covenant under command of the righteous branch that he continues to prophesy about. We think about Daniel in the midst of exile, where he has these visions of the Son of Man given an everlasting dominion. These men and others of their peculiarity were transfixed upon their God because they saw things glorious yet veiled in their full scope of realization. But what does Peter say? He says that what they saw was the grace that was to be ours. They saw our salvation accomplished. And upon inquiring, they saw that they prophesied for a people yet to be revealed, a gospel that had yet to be fully shared. But these things have now been announced to us, you and I. We are the great beneficiaries of this new covenant, the outworking of these glorious prophecies. This is the vast importance placed upon us when we think in terms of our sufferings and our glorious inheritance. Peter is reminding us not to downplay the grace of our inheritance, because it has been long predicted and inquired after by the holy prophets of old. This should put the great emphasis on our lives and what sort of holy living we ourselves promote as we walk in the gracious revelation of what has been veiled. It is upon this that Peter moves to verse number 13. And we will look at that together on our next time on Teaching Thursdays. This is the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again next week.